Okay, so today we're going to be uh, looking at preterism. Preterism is very broad. I, I spent the last two weeks really looking into the subject via reading. List, I listened to endless hours <laughs> of sermons. It's a lot out there. Uh, asked lots and lots of questions, did a lot of research, anything that I could to make sure that I had an understanding where they're coming from. And uh, so we're not going to deep, but so it's, it's a very broad subject. So what Seth and I, we're, we're going to boil it down to, uh, dare I, I'm going to use the word heresy, but, but I don't want to get anyone upset. But we're going to boil it down to the two points that I think is where preterism, it, it's so broad, we just can't discuss it all. But we're going to hit the two areas that I think once, once we've crossed that line, we're in deep, 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 deep trouble. And that is the return of Jesus his kingdom, mm -hmm. and the resurrection of the saints. So those, those, that's going to be, we'll say, our, our thrust, the end times, the, those, those two things. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest of them, I probably will disagree with, with most on what they think has been fulfilled, but it's not the end of the world, you know, it's not, it's not something that you have to break fellowship over. But I do think that we're getting into very dangerous territory when we talk about that Jesus has returned and the resurrection has occurred, if in fact, it, if it has or hasn't, it's an important subject. Well, well let me just put this um, out there. Probably the majority of preterists don't believe that. They call themselves partial preterists, mm -hmm. and they would say that, well, the vast majority of everything's happened except the resurrection of the dead and, the, and eternity. Then you get this, this crowd that wants to say, well, it's all done. Mm -hmm. It's over, and we're living in the and kingdom. And that's, that's where the dangerous That's where the horrible heresy comes in. And as, as far as dealing with them doctrine by doctrine, we're, we're not going to even do that. We're, I think we're just going to simply show how the end result that they get is not the end result the Scripture really teaches mm -hmm. from a big picture. But what I found was, is, I mean, it's just like any you know, belief system, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Preterism, from my, the best that I could put together, they have a middle. But they don't have a beginning and they don't have an end. And when you start asking questions outside of their little heart area, which is everything's been fulfilled, when you start asking them, okay, well, what happens now? What happens this? What happens, you know, such as a simple question such as where do the saints spend eternity? They don't have a solid answer on that. Some of them don't have an answer at all. They it's really amazing how good they are dancing around it. But obviously they haven't worked out the end. So they've got a good center. But they don't have an end and they don't have a beginning. So we really can't even address it as a doctrine because it is, it's just kind of a free-for-all. Mm -hmm. just The only thing that they care about is that you believe, like they do, that we are living <laughs> in the kingdom of, of God right now. And that whether it's spiritual or literal, that Jesus has returned and is here in ruling his kingdom. And for my personal opinion, kind of give you a a jump into your history perspective. Why isn't preterism, I mean, if we're talking about the return of Jesus, we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. If, in fact, that was true, why is this not bigger than it is? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't mean just a little bigger. I mean way bigger than it is. And the reason is, as I probably for most of you, if, if, at least for me, is I look around and I say, I can't see it. And so that's the biggest uphill battle, I think, that uh, for the average person is, is they're claiming something has happened 
and it's something that we should all be feeling, experiencing, and being able to see. And we're going to show from Scripture here today what we should be seeing if Scripture is telling us the truth. I think that's a good introduction uh, to it. And this is one of those things, I don't know of any other doctrine that fits into exactly this category. That the entire thing hinges on when the book of Revelation was written. If, if it could be shown that the book of Revelation was written after the year 70 AD, this, the entire edifice collapses to the ground. It can't be in any wise true. Even some of the leading preterist minds admit that. That, 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 that is their, everything hinges on that. that I've, I found, Seth, that their focus on 70 AD is so tight that I almost title this lesson the gospel of Josephus because that's literally where they're at nothing else matters it doesn't matter what scripture says it doesn't matter what you say it doesn't matter what the church is taught it doesn't matter what any anything Josephus said and therefore it happened mm -hmm. it does seem to come across that but I, there's a few interesting points we can make about this the, the preterist argument as I've understood it, this this historical argument kind of hinges around that, that Revelation has got to have been written 64 to 66 A.D. to get it in prior to the AD 70 mm -hmm. event. Now, the problem we've got here is if we look, if we look in our Bible, we can get little, uh, a few little historical tidbits that start to shed doubt on that. Um, in 1 Timothy, just to, just to start out with this, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul tells Timothy, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. Now, let your mind wander over to Revelation. Ephesus is the first church mentioned in the mm -hmm. uh, letter to the seven churches. Uh, uh, Paul says, I besought thee to abide at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he, he has left Timothy in Ephesus. Uh, as a uh, apparently as an overseer, a bishop, to uh, to keep doctrine, control doctrinal problems that were mm -hmm. apparently cropping up. Now, the book of First Timothy was written based on the the, the evidence and based on the uh, uh, guesses of, of New Testament historians, sixty five, maybe sixty six A.D. So we're getting real close to the eighty seventy event. Now, let's ask ourselves a question. Well, real quick, we could just, before you go any further, make sure everyone is caught up on this 78D event. Um, I'm sure you are, but just to make sure, the claim is, is that um, that was the destruction of Jerusalem. By the Roman army. By the Roman army. So there, that, that claim is, is that at 70 AD, that was the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus claimed would happen. And then Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, recorded that he saw... Of it, something in the sky that was majestic and horses and soldiers of that nature. And so their claim is that was when Jesus returned in all his glory. So just mm -hmm. get you caught up where Seth is going with this. He, he's setting the foundation that the book of Revelation, if the book of Revelation, which is the book of prophecy there, was written after 70 AD, then it couldn't have been fulfilled. That would be no point in writing something that had already happened as prophecy. So the preterists have redated Revelation to between 66 and 70 AD. 
All right, go ahead, Sam. All right. Well, just just to start here in this scripture with this. Let's think about what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. First of all, we've got Timothy in Ephesus, and there's no mention of the Apostle John. Which we know that John was in Ephesus at a later date. But here's the thing. If, if John, an apostle, was present in Ephesus at this time, which would be required for the, the date to fit in the predator's scheme... Why in the world would Timothy, who was not an apostle, but was a, uh, an associate of, of Paul, why would he be left at Ephesus in the position of a leading bishop or, or presbyter? Why would John not have been in charge? There's no mention of John in any of Paul's letters to Timothy, in First or Second Timothy. Uh, in, in fact, over in Second Timothy, Paul specifically mentions 17 individuals in the city of Ephesus, working in the church, one of the men he mentions is not the Apostle John. Mm -hmm. So either Paul is deliberately snubbing the Apostle John, or he wasn't there. Logic would tell us he's not there at this point in history, when these books were written, which we know were written in the mid-60s. And then finally, in Revelation itself, which the Apostle John wrote... Neither Paul nor Timothy are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is the letter to the church at Ephesus. So neither of these great figures, the Apostle Paul nor the Apostle John, with Paul's assistant Timothy, they don't seem to be crossing over at all at this point in time, at this location, which that speaks against the preterist scheme because it... It's putting it out of time. Mm -hmm. We've got a, there's a, another little piece of evidence that we can see uh, that will tie us to the book of Revelation in Colossians, which uh, again that the estimates of this uh, when these books were written. Sometimes we get a broad figure, but Colossians was written sometime in from 60 to 64 A.D. I know that's a very wide, you know, four years. <laughs> that was hard to pin down. But in two, uh, actually in three places in that book, in Colossians 2, verse 2, and in Colossians 4, verses 13 and 16, Paul mentions Laodicea. Now that should trip a memory in your brain that Laodicea is the seventh church mentioned in Revelation. And in Revelation, there's not a good word said about that church. It says it's a cold church, it's left its first love, it's... A dying church, apparently. But in Colossians, it's apparently a thriving church. Paul is telling them to uh, allow the, the Laodiceans to read the letter to the Colossian church. And he tells the Colossians, you, you also read a letter that I wrote to the Laodicean church, which may have been lost to history. I, I don't know what letter that was. <clears throat> now, the problem is, what could possibly have happened to the church at Laodicea in less than four years for them to be as critically... Uh, um, criticized, as aggressively criticized as we find them being criticized in Revelation chapter 3. We, we don't have any idea how that church could have felt fallen apart that bad in less than five years. My argument is they could not have, that, that could not have happened. But now let's, let's just continue here. 
keep Laodicea in, in your mind. And here's where we're going to cross into a little bit of secular history. Laodicea was struck by a terrible, terrible earthquake in the year 60 AD. This is in Roman history. This is very well attested. The city was leveled. There, were, there was massive destruction, massive death. Now, Revelation 3.16, when describing the city of Laodicea and the church in that city, we find these words. Uh, excuse me, verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. So uh, this is being described as a church saying, we're very rich, we're doing wonderful, we don't need anything. Archaeological evidence from the, from the excavation point uh, of ancient Laodicea they have guessed that the rebuilding of that city took anywhere from 25 to 30 years. Now, if the earthquake occurred in 60, and this book is written in 65 or 66, how did they get rich that quick? That, that, that makes no sense. That, 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 that itself argues against, so from a, just simply from a secular historical standpoint, the, the preterist position. And again, and again, keep in mind... If they can't put the book prior to A.D. 70, the entire structure collapses. It's just that simple. Well, simply put, the uh, revelation has been dated almost undisputed to the late 90s. Yes. And that is... Which a, was f several years after 70 A.D., a, a number of, which means that whatever John was, the angels was showing John going to take place in the future could not be... 70 AD cannot be 70 uh, AD. Well, that is another. That's a very interesting point. For the reason that, that again, we're going to intersect with Roman history here. The preterist argument is that all of these uh, prophecies that are found in, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, among other places, as well as the Book of Revelation, are talking about the Emperor Nero. Now, the emperor Nero, we know he's, he's almost become synonymous with a terrible, terrible, wicked person. Well, Nero ruled Rome from 54 to 68 A.D. So again, we would have to be putting the, uh, the, the book between 60 and 65. Uh, the traditional date for uh, Revelation puts it in the reign of the emperor Domitian who reigned from 81 to 96 A.D. In fact, he was assassinated on September the 18th, 96 A.D. It's, there's a lot of interesting things in Roman history that are still, we pretty can be pretty precise, precise about. Yeah. Well, we know that Domitian practiced banishment of Christians and others who displeased him. In fact, the, the Roman historian... Nero, he wasn't quite the same. Well... The, the Roman historian uh, Dio Cassius, who wrote a, a very extensive history of Rome up to his time, uh, is just called Roman history. Three times he mentions that Domitian seemed to be very fond of the practice of banishment rather than execution. However, we know that during the reign of Nero, many Christians were executed, among whom were Peter and likely Paul. 
So the argument the preterist has to put forward is why would Nero execute Peter and Paul and decide to banish John when there's no record of Nero ever banishing anyone else? He just killed them. He was a rather mentally unstable individual. So uh, you know, all of those, um, that intersection of, of, of the Bible history with that secular history all argues against the, the early date of Revelation. It rather argues for the late date of Revelation, specifically uh, with John being on Patmos, that, uh, like you said, the traditional date is 95 to 96 AD. And uh, it was um, customary in that day when an emperor died that a banished person may be restored by the next emperor. And it would seem that the emperor after Domitian, who was uh, Nerva, that John was indeed allowed to leave Patmos. And at that point, he went to Ephesus and became the, the, the bishop of the church of Ephesus. Not when Paul and Timothy were there. So that all of those points, I think, in, in my estimation, really argue against the possibility that this book could have been published prior to A.D. 70. In fact, it was 25 or 26 years after A.D. 70. And so the, so the significance of this is that without that, without being able to take Revelate, because, you, I mean, we're going to spend a good part of our time here in Revelation, mm -hmm. if they if they can't get Revel if they cannot date Revelation prior to seventy A.D., then the entire religious structure that they stand behind completely crumbles. Absolutely, it completely changes everything. And uh, let me just just throw a couple of more little facts out there quickly. That uh, in, in the post-apostolic era, um, you know, th this is extra biblical evidence, but this this does come from Christian writers. A very early Christian uh, writer, and in fact, this man is, is fascinating because he's very highly regarded by uh, individuals on, um, you know, both Christian and secular historians. Uh, early Christian writer Irenaeus. Now, he is a second generation, or I should say third generation, from John. He was a disciple of a man named Polycarp who knew the Apostle John. So... We, we would have a peculiar uh, problem here, I think, that this is a logical problem. If, if John, who the preterist, does not argue that the Apostle John wrote Revelation, but if the Apostle John wrote Revelation, how did he fail to communicate the preterist position to his student, who then failed to communicate it to his student, and on down the line, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a quote from Irenaeus in his, uh, his great book, Against Heresies. I want to read this. Uh, this. This work was published um, prior to 200 AD. And he says, speaking of, uh, he's actually talking about Revelation chapter 13 in this particular uh, paragraph. But he says, if it had been necessary to announce his name, they're talking about the beast or the Antichrist, uh, plainly at the present time, it would have been spoken by him who saw the apocalypse. For it was not seen long ago, but almost in our own time, that is, at the end of the reign of Domitian. So Irenaeus apparently believed it was at that time which would have placed it again before 90 A.D. 
taking another step down the line, the, the, the oldest complete commentary on the book of Revelation was written prior to 300 A.D. by a uh, Christian uh, writer. His name was Victorinus. And he, it contains the sentence, When John said these things, he was on the island of Patmos, condemned to labor in the mines by Caesar Domitian. Apparently, the early church believed and placed it in that time frame, mm -hmm. not in the reign of, of Caesar Nero. Uh, the, the first clear reference we have, though, to this alleged early date question is one line in a superscription of a Syriac New Testament that dates to the late 6th century. Uh, which, you know, this, we're getting very, very late past the original point then and the next time this crops up and I'm, I'm going to leave, leave the history off of this the next time this crops up is where we find our first uh, systematic preterist book of prophecy was written by a fellow named Luis de Alcazar who was a Spanish Jesuit priest at the time of the reformation when the, when the reformers, essentially to a man, were pointing at the Pope and saying, he looks like the Antichrist to me. That the, the uh, modern-day preterists have claimed that they believe this doctrine is becoming more commonly accepted due to the proliferation of more recent translations of the Bible. I have no reason to doubt them on that point because these recent translations of the Bible coming from corrupt texts can be twisted to say all kinds of things. Careful, Seth. <laughs> hurt feelings. But nonetheless, I'm going, to, I'm going to leave the history of that all and right. we'll so go into the script. those of you who didn't know, Seth's quite the historian. So those of you that like history, there you have it. And that in and of itself would shut the door on the idea that John was teaching all prophecy was going to be fulfilled in 70 AD. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at some scripture. Now they, they camp out on the first part there of, of Matthew chapter 24, which I'd say the, a good portion of it. We are not going to, we're not going to have a battle of the wits. Well, you say that it, this means the coming of, the, of Jesus. I say it means something else. We're, we're, we're just going to, for the sake of uh, argument, we're going to just say Matthew, because I, I have my opinion, Seth has his opinion, everyone has their opinion, so it's not that we couldn't argue that some of the positions they're taking in Matthew chapter 24 uh, couldn't be argued. But we're going to just kind of let them have that, and their position is, is Matthew chapter 24 is the early, the, the good portion of it, is predicting 70 A.D. Mm -hmm. not, not, and, and of course, we read it, we say, oh, it's, it's predicting the return of Jesus Christ. Well, they think 70 A.D. is when Jesus Christ returned. But let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's, let's get past some of what they argue. Mm -hmm. And let's get into the parts of Scripture that they don't argue, more importantly, don't even mention. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they don't have an answer. But by golly, I mean, just because you have an answer doesn't mean that it's right. So no, it let's, let's, I'm gonna do, we're going to give this Scripture to you, and then you can leave here and determine whether or not this scripture sounds like something that has already been fulfilled. So in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 50, we're coming into here the, uh, 
a, a parable of the unfaithful servant. We get through the whole parable at the end, and it says in 51, And shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is referring to judgment, eternal, right. the eternal judgment. <clears throat> if what they're saying is true, then the, these verses that are referencing the return, I guess the point I want to say is that, that it, this judgment in 51 does not seem like it's something that is constantly occurring. It's an occurrence. Mm -hmm. All right, so we move on over to 25. We get into the, uh, the 10 versions. We're more familiar with that. We don't have time to read all the scripture here. But the 10 versions, in a nutshell, is, is we've got five that had oil in their lamps and five that didn't, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and five of them had to go off looking for it, and then when they came back, the door was already shut. And here's what it says in verse 11 of, of chapter 25. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, the ones that didn't have the oil, they went and found it, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. It sounds like to me that they're, they're, that's it. All right, we have, we have an opportunity, and I think scripture is very consistent on this. We have an opportunity to get ourselves, we get our oil in our lamps, get ourselves ready for the return of Christ, and then once it happens, it's too late. It's too late. It's both, the, both the verses I've read so far are indicating it's too late. The predators view say it's ongoing. Am I making any sense there? That it's already been fulfilled. Jesus has already come. He's already here, or here spiritually. We've already had the resurrection. It's done. There's nothing left in Scripture. But yet, it's still ongoing. We still have sinners. Here it's saying that you've got this one opportunity to get your life right, and then if it, you don't get it right before Jesus gets here, there's no getting it right later. Let, let me, on that point, and I'll show you where this leads, and why this is dangerous. I had a... I've had individuals uh, use the statement in Ecclesiastes that says, the earth abideth forever. They use that as exactly that argument. They literally say there will, there it will, that this earth is going to continue forever. That you, the kingdom of God will continue forever. And, well, but, and then... The, the argument, see, that this is how the, they, they will not settle on whether a thing is, whether a thing is uh, literal or whether a thing is spiritualized. Because in, in arguing against that point, their interpretation of that particular verse, I, I referred to uh, the book of Second Peter chapter 3. Where we, and you can, you can read it for yourself in verse 10, 11, and 12, we read about a account of a day, the day of the Lord coming. We read about the heavens passing away. We read about fervent heat. We read about the earth being burned up. The answer that I was given basically was, oh, well, you can't be so literal. Well, somehow we can be literal in Ecclesiastes that the earth will never end and this is it, but we can't be literal in Second Peter. Preterism always runs into this problem. They've got to be inconsistent. Mm -hmm. well, and they've decided that the, they're going to be inconsistent in the place that 
uh, we're going to spiritualize the resurrection. We're going to spiritualize the second coming of Christ. And we're going to li- literalize those, uh, the words soon, quickly, it's terms like that that are found in, in Matthew uh, 24. And what you arrive at is a, you arrive at what in my, my, in my estimation is a half-baked mess. Well, it's definitely <laughs> Interpretive a mess. Interpretive mess. And there's no question that there's literal and figurative speech. But to use figurative speech to build your entire case off mm-hmm. of it, that, that could be dangerous. Especially in something as literal as a return of, of, yes. of Jesus. And and hopefully we have time that we can show just how uh, ridiculous, I mean, what a literal return of Jesus would look like versus the spiritual return of Jesus. It says a lot about what we think, who God is. And just just to throw that out there, right now, the preterist, the full preterist that we're speaking of, believe that we're in the kingdom of God right now. That this is as good as it's going to get. Um, that says a lot about what you think God is. And it says a lot about even the stuff that they spiritualize. It can be, even if it's not literal, it should be figuratively better than what we're seeing right now. But let's take, since we're, we are dealing, we have to deal with the whole spiritual thing. Let's, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're all familiar with the uh, parable there in Matthew 13 verse 24 about the, the wheat and the tares. We're not going to read the parable because that could be spiritualized. We're going to go to Jesus's interpretation of that parable. Now, they may not agree with this, and I, I, honestly, there's, there's only so much that we can do if one is convicted that everything is symbolic, everything is spiritualized. But if I'm going to tell a story that has hidden meanings, and then later I take you behind closed doors and say, okay, guys, bring it in. I want to tell you what it meant I think that you really, really, really have, have walked across the line somewhere to say, oh, well, he's still speaking spiritually. Mm-hmm. So let's look at, this is, talk, this is a parable of end times. I'm in 37, Matthew chapter 13, 37. And he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good, and he's given an example of the, what the parable means over here, starting in verse 24. So he said, the sower is the good seed, the son of man, Jesus. The field of the, is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one, or Satan. The enemy that soweth them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. So now we know for sure we're talking about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. We don't have to, you know, oh, what's he mean here? What's he saying there? Jesus is literally saying, I'm, I'm giving you the, what this means, and it's talking about the end of the world. It means it should be done. And then he goes on to say, the reapers are the angels, therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. When has that happened? Well, let's read the next verse. Okay. (laughs) The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather gather out of his kingdom all things that offend them which do iniquity. Seth, I think we got a lot of offensive and iniquity going on right now. I'm offended now. by a lot of things in this society. 
So there we'll, we'll say there's, there's the first, and this is, you know, Matthew, the same writer in which they completely camp out on as meaning that the, the, all this has already took, taken place in 70 AD. Yet here it's clear that there's still some things yes. we have to see because we can't look out and, and we still see wickedness. And then I, I think we should uh, go over to just keep moving forward in this direction. Let's go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, uh, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, oh, we got a little bit of reading here, but I, I like starting up uh, verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, this means death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, we as those who are still left alive, shall be changed from corruptible, must be put on, put on incorruption, and the moral must put on, the mortal rather, the ones who would die, the mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal have, shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks, thanks be to God, which forgiveth us the victory, who giveth us the victory, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as we know that your labor is not in vain of the Lord. So we have all this talk about corrupt, corruptible bodies, incorruptible mm -hmm. bodies. Do you know anyone that has an incorruptible body? That's yet to happen. Okay, so I don't, it doesn't matter where you want to put this on your eschatology, but we, we have not hit that point yet. Now, just to make sure that we understand this is, not too, this is not spiritualized, that last verse, Paul is telling us that this is what we are to look forward to. Mm -hmm. He's saying that this is, what's the word he used? Uh, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That this is the, us enduring the current world will be worth it because someday we're going to have something different. The world's not different. The world's very much the same. I mean, it's ever changing back and forth, historically speaking, but evil still is here. Righteousness is not rising up in victory. We're still in corruptible bodies. Mm -hmm. We still deal with mortality. I, I, we're gonna die. And that's, that's, a, that's a big thing right there when you start asking, the pre going down that road with preterists, what happens after death? They really don't have a solid answer because I don't think they've thought a whole lot about it. But I know that, that we have, and we know that someday we're going to live forever as we were designed and created. Right. Another aspect of this, uh, we'll say a, a theological mindset, it goes back to the same thing the mainstream Christian church likes to do, change. That we're going to somehow, everything's going to be completely different than God originally designed. If you read Revelation, and we're going to get to the last couple chapters there in Revelation, when you read that, it looks a lot like the Garden of Eden before the fall. There might be some slight differences. We're not going to have a tempter. There's things like that that's going to be, you know, taken care of. 
but God didn't design us as like angels. Mm-hmm. We're not really designed to live in a heavenly realm. We're designed to live here on earth. Now, he's going to perfect that. I don't know what an uncorruptible body really looks like. We have a lot of you know, guesses, but I think we can take from the mortality versus the immortality that we're going to have go back to the original design of Adam and Eve, and that is we're not going to have death. Right. That, but th- that we're designed to be here. That's the creation that God made us. What they're saying is, I created you to be here, but I'm going to go ahead and pull you out of there, and then I'm going to give you eternity in some spirit world. We, we human beings were never designed to live as disembodied spirits. I know that they used. Uh, I've heard older um, ministers used to say, "We're not in eternity. We're not going to be just sitting on a cloud plucking a harp all day <laughs> with no body." That, that's just that's not the way. Like I said, that's not the way we were designed. No, not way we were designed. And, and when we get to Revelation, we'll see. I mean, there's a description of. Uh, of river and trees and, yeah. and I don't know exactly how it works I don't suppose anybody does but it's not a disembodied spirit world it's not what's being described let's turn to second Timothy chapter uh, 3 this may not be so profound but I, I think it's good for kicking giggles let's turn to the second uh, Timothy chapter 3 and I actually have a little header above the chapter it says the, the coming of the apostasy so this is, and, but when we get into it, it's talking about the last days. Mm-hmm. All right, so that the last days, I guess, would be just prior to the end, right? The, 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 the last day would be prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So let's see what that looks like. Verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, parents... Uh, parents, disobedient to parents, um, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, um, fears, despisers of their of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captives, silly women laden with their sin, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Doesn't that sound like now? (laughs) That sounds like now really, really good. So this idea that that the kingdom of... For a preterist, I just read the kingdom of God. For us... I read to you what it's going to look like before the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. All right? So that makes sure that we're all on the, on the same page there. That this is, this is what um, Paul is telling Timothy the, the, the this is prior to this the is what's return. Coming. <laughs> this is what, you, what you're going to have to deal with first. Well, if, the, if Jesus came and the resurrection took place, boy, not much changed. Not much change. Not all right, all. and we're, we're burning up time like crazy. Let's turn to one more verse before we go to Revelation, and that is in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, uh, well, let's, let's see here. Let's jump into verse um, 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So in 70 A.D., this is what, what this would be talking about, the return of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is going to bring all the saints with him mm -hmm. when he comes in his glory. Where are all those guys at? Where is the historical record of, I'm going to assume, thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of people that have been, were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ when Jesus went into hell and set the captives free, that those saints would be returning in their glory to receive their uncorruptible body. Where are they at? When did this happen? This, this wasn't recorded. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now this is the first resurrection. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but we're going to run into this again in Revelation. Mm -hmm. It gives a little more detail. But again... One, there was no record, historical record by Josephus of a resurrection. Two, this resurrection even a mention of it. would be, I mean, if we take the description that Scripture gives us, I mean, how, how many of you have seen one person raised from the dead? And we're talking about all the saints that are in, in the ground and you know, raised Nathan, from the dead. Here's the problem with that. Here we sit, uh, you know, this is uh, 2022. First Thessalonians was written in the, sometime in the early 50s A.D., so we're nearly 2,000 years removed from this. If this happened, well, what becomes of us? If it's already over and done with, we, need, we should just pack up and go home. We don't have any hope. Yeah. It's over and we missed it. And that's, that's, that's the argument. That is exactly true because the one I'm about to read next, in these same series of verses, we're going to see that this is a one-time event. We don't, we don't get a do-over. And so in 17, it says, them which are alive and remain shall be called up. So if, you, if you're not in the grave and Jesus comes back and you're witnessing this, again, Josephus failed to mention this part too. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you can spiritualize this. I mean, I guess your souls go up. I don't know. But anyways, I'm going to read it as it is. Them which are alive remain and are caught up together with them in the clouds. So it's a literal coming. They see it in the clouds, mm -hmm. but it's not a literal, we're going to go and those who are saints. So were there no saved in Jerusalem in 70 AD? I don't know. And that being said, this event took, took place four years earlier than 70 AD. They don't discuss that, but they're saying that the coming of Jesus was in 66 AD. Mm -hmm. And the destruction of Jerusalem was 70 AD. Which, if Jesus had already returned, what would be the purpose of the destruction of Jerusalem? I don't, anyways. It doesn't fit. I'm thinking too deep. <laughs> um, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall... And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This is something we're looking forward to. Okay? This is, this is the reward for the saints. And if it's a one-time event and we missed it, then my question is, what's our reward? What are we to be comforted with? Well, I used to be comforted by this verse. But if it's already happened, well, this verse does me no good. All right. Well, Seth, I'm ready to go to Revelation. Let's go to Revelation, let's, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. We, we've only got about 15 minutes left. So, and that's a lot. Let's skip around here a little bit. All right, so Revelation chapter 20 starts out with a description of Satan there. Um, for those of you that struggle with the existence of Satan, it's, it's pretty literal right here. And even, I was reading somewhere in here where, it actually talks about, uh, well, that's, that's another subject. All right, so let's go to verse 3. And cast him, in, this is Satan, and cast, he, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set the seal upon him, and he should 
should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose for a little season. Now, this is, is this, uh, where I understand it, one, it, it hasn't happened. Because as far as I can tell, Satan's influence in the world is still about what it has always been. Seems to be increasing. Uh, yeah, e evil is uh, no longer even high. Mm -hmm. Remember, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, and uh, wickedness in high places. And Satan plays a role in that. So th what's going ha to happen is that Satan's going to be taken out of the mix. Mm -hmm. And that, should, that, that all by itself should be a, a significant visible change that we could see in the world. Well, let me play, for lack of a better term, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a devil's advocate here. <laughs> a preterist would say, because I've had this discussion with them, that this, is, that this happened in AD 70, which allowed the growth of, and the expansion of the Christian message throughout the formerly pagan world. Oh, all those that were dying. I yeah. That's how they would explain this. But again, they, they have to spiritualize it. Mm -hmm. It can't, in, in that scheme, it cannot be literal. It must be just mean a spiritual occurrence that this, um, the lack of uh, deceiving the nations means, oh, now people hear the gospel and believe it. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, some of the, the partial preterists, I believe, will... Well, we're not interested in the partial preterists. We're they will at least here. admit that, yeah, that's why the gospel spread into the formerly pagan world, you know, between uh, the, the apostolic era right. through the Middle Ages. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm not sure how they would spiritualize a thousand years. Because it wasn't quite a thousand years. They, they do spiritualize it yeah. to mean some long, undetermined amount if they simply don't take it literally. And that's fine. That's what if, they if, do. If, if, <laughs> if a person is locked into spirit, and they get here today, we're not, I'm not trying to undo a preterist. I'm, I'm here to, to just offer the, a logical, biblical case uh, against that. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're a person that it spiritualizes everything, then there's not much. To, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's what you can do. But I, I just, you know, can't really argue with the spiritualization concept. But uh, moving on, uh, verse number four, I saw the throne and they sat upon it. And the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded and the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which um, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their forehead and their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So, one, we got more to go on. But one, this is, a, this is far bigger mm -hmm. than a 70 AD local situation. Spiritualize it or don't spiritualize it. This, does, this is not a small thing. Right. This is a very large thing. And this is the first resurrection. And we, we talked about that, the first resurrection there a little bit earlier on. Um, that, and this is also would be the return of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and which we saw there in Thessalonians, I believe. Or... Did we even go to that verse? We might not have. But anyways, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, 
But they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. We can spiritualize that a thousand years. But there's, there's, there's only mention of two resurrections in Scripture. We just mentioned the first one. Mm-hmm. If you didn't make the first one, you have only one other option. And I believe it, it says here, it says, uh, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and on such the second death hath no power. So the second resurrection, which we're going to read about here in just a second, second resurrection obviously is not a good thing. Yeah, you don't want to be there. But I think what's important is, is that this is not, if, it, if it, a one-time event, it doesn't sound like a one-time event that's going to happen in the middle of it all. It's a one-time event that has to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. Once it happens, it's a done deal. Right. Again, that goes back to the ten virgins. Once the door's shut, it's a done deal. An- another example of a done deal, if you don't make this one, then you're going to get the second resurrection, and that, you don't, want you don't want to be part of that. All right, so we can skip through some of this, and let's just go up to verse 11 and get to the second, if I'm... You're okay with that. You don't have sure. anything. Okay. No, no, go ahead. And I saw a great white throne, and he that sat upon it, and whose face and earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, and when the book, and which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things. The dead here are the dead that were not in the first resurrection. So, the dead were judged of those and things which were written in the book. So, be aware, there's a book that's keeping record of everything you've done, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Hell's going to have a new location. And they were judged, every man, according to his works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, that this is the second death." Whosoever was found written in the, was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, does this sound like an ongoing thing, or is this a done deal? It can't be. It's, an, it's a, a predicted historical event. So if this has already taken place, then everyone who dies not in Christ, where do they go? If, if, if what you're asking is if verse 14 has already occurred... And when an unsaved person, uh, an unbelieving person dies, if death and hell are cast in the lake of fire, those people, since the judgment already occurred, what happens to them? That's right. Yeah, you, you can't have an ultimate judgment and then continue to let things run like they, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of like saying, I'm going to judge a prisoner and then I'm going to turn them loose and let them keep going. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed. These ver- I think this is describing a really pinnacle event in history that's going to start to change the course of how things are. And then when we go into verse 21, we see, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I know they spiritualize that. Oh yeah. I know you're getting ready to jump on that. I know it. They They spiritualize (laughs) that. But nonetheless, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more seas. Let's go ahead and spiritualize it. Been picking on me. Spiritualize that. No matter how you cut and dice this potato right here, it's got to be different. Right. I, I guess that's if I have nothing else that you get from what I see is that the, the preterist, the full preterist view, have, they say something great took place, but nothing great happened. 
Well, the only way the world's getting different that I can see, and maybe somebody else sees something different, the only thing I see is things are getting worse. We're, I mean, we're growing weaker. We're, the world's growing dirtier. Sin is, we heard this morning, sin is getting worse. I'm going to play the devil guy again. They would say, well, that's happened lots of times in cycles of history. We're just going through another cycle. But here's well, we're going through a bad one. This is what changes our cycle. We have nowhere else to go. There was always a, another piece of real estate that Christians could get and go and get away from the world. They just kept moving away, moving away. Well, there's nowhere left. Well, there's nowhere else to go. When America falls, it's over. And America is heading towards judgment. I get it. We, we got a bunch of cowboys in America, and, and that helps slow down the, the process that we're on. But eventually, God's going to get involved in such a way that it doesn't matter how many gun-toting cowboys that you know, they're not going to be able to stop what, what's coming because it's God's going to be involved. But, uh, yeah, it, it is different now because yes. the world is different. All right, let's keep going. And I, John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, come down from, from God out of the heavens, prepared a bride adorned for her husband... And I heard a great voice out of the heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he which dwelt with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, I know they spiritualize that as well, that God is living within us. Oh, yeah. All right, but let's, let's see him spiritualize this. You ready? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former thing, the former things, mm -hmm. the former things are passed away. And he sat upon his throne and behold, I make all things new. Spiritualize that, Seth. <laughs> I don't think I can. I, yeah, and you, you, you can't. This, this is not our reality. It's something we have to look forward to. But their, their claim, if we take it to its end results, I've never heard one actually claim this, but if we take their road that they're on to its end result, this has to be somewhere in the world. Well, the, the, you know, you've been mentioning about the spiritual, the, the, the entire thing, that's, the end, that's where this has to end up. It's all spiritual, which is really a poor term. Basically, the term they're using is, well, just imagine it's that way. It's really not even to say it's spiritualized. They're saying, well, we're we just going to make believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. It reduces our faith to make believe. It's, it's what I think is the ultimate, is the end result of this. That we're just going to, I'm going to close my eyes and pretend it's this way. Right. I'm going to pretend that. I, that, you, that we're not going to get sick and die. I'm going to pretend that my great-grandfather's still here. I'm going to pretend that I don't look out at the world to see what I see. Right. Th that, that's, what, that, that's what's being asked of us. There are some, Seth, that, that are, they say they're drawn to the idea of preterism, full preterism, because it's, the concept is, is that we are in the kingdom of God now. Lord, have mercy on us. And because of that, we need to be active building that kingdom. So mm -hmm. it makes, makes people proactive in their belief system. The problem is, is that 
they, they left out this big old psychological aspect, and that is, is that if this is the kingdom of God, most people are so depressed by their, their circumstances that they're not really interested in, in doing anything because it's kind of like a, a guy that's into uh, recycling. If he truly thought that he was going to change the world, he, getting everybody to recycle, it wouldn't take him long before he'd realize, I'm not really making a dent in this thing. And they get frustrated and quit. Mm -hmm. Or they slow down, and, but they, they, they're not going to see in their lifetime a big change right. because it's just little of them. Well, that's kind of how Christians are. They might be on fire for a little bit. Oh, I'm going to turn this world into the kingdom of God because that's what I'm told to do. And after five or six years of, you know, taking on sin and realizing it's gaining ground, you finally just find you a little cabin in the woods and said, you know, I'll just wait this thing out. Mm -hmm. Just like they accuse us that don't believe in the end, that, that this is the kingdom of God, that we're just sitting here waiting on God. But wait, sidetrack. Let's get into your, your water area here in chapter number uh, 22. And he showed me a pure river, a water of life, clear crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb, and in the midst of the streets of it, and either side of the river, and there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruit, and yield the fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for healing, of the nations. Now I guess they could spiritualize that. They would have to. But let, this is what I want. This is this is what I think is funny. And we skipped the Jerusalem part. There's there's a, a call for a new Jerusalem to come out of the sky. And I know we like to spiritualize that as well. But there's actually dimensions given on that, and that's not does not go with figurative speech in scripture mm -hmm. when they give really specifics like how long and how tall kind of like the ark a lot of people would want to you know spiritualize the ark but the reality is it literally tells us what it looks like so it's a literal thing in the same way with this new jerusalem there is dimensions given but here's what over here not to sidetrack too much but uh chapter 22 verse 3 it says and there will be no more curse so let me read you the curse because it shouldn't be this in the world anymore. I'm in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm just going to focus on the man and the woman. Under the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And that thy desire shall be to thy husband. And he shall rule over thee. We still having pain and suffering and death of children in the world today. And mothers are suffering from that greatly. Huh. That curse hadn't been taken away. Not a bit. All right, let's, let's go on to Adam. Maybe Adam fared a little better than, uh, <laughs> than Eve did. Let's see how it went with him. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it. In all the days of thy life, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of, the, of it wast thou taken the dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now, are we, uh, we still dying? Still being buried? Uh, we got there, uh, eat in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. Well, and that I, normally happens when I eat chili. Well, I can, but, uh, I I can testify that the, those that keep up with it, the cursed ground is not improving. If there's any interruption in the flow of commercial fertilizer, we're going to see something we ain't never seen before. 
He has not gotten easier at all. At all. None of these things have been changed from that original curse. All right, well, Seth, we've, we've used up quite a bit of time. I don't know if we got through everything. There, there is so much. Well, there's so much you there could is. touch on the topic. I, mean, really I really is. was just kind of, you know, pleading to the, the visual aspect, give you guys some, something to, that you can see with your minds that this, what we have now and what God says we will have someday, the, the two are not connecting yet. There's, there's, there's still a gap there. And um, so I guess that's all I have. Well, I think, I, I think you made your, your case. I suppose we'll take any questions or any statements anyone would like to make.